Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. I'm your host Jivraj and on this podcast I speak with founders, investors and domain experts from the Indian Valley trying to understand the art of building a legendary company. In this episode I speak with Umang Bedi, co-founder of Versey Innovation. Versey Innovation is the parent brand that houses Daily Hunt, India's largest content aggregator platform, and Josh India's leading short video entertainment application. Versave has been a first mover in the local language content landscape, building for the next billion Indian users and has magnificently built a product that sticks on top of great fundamentals. With more than 350 million monthly active users across both Daily Hunt and Josh, Versave is valued at around 3 billion dollars. marching exponentially towards gaining greater market share. I sit down with Umang, one of the co-founders of Verse, someone who has also previously led Adobe and Facebook in India to know more about how Verse is leading the wave of content for Bharat. We discuss a bunch of aspects including Umang's plunge into entrepreneurship, understanding what it means to successfully scale a content platform. the nuances of building a long-term organization and the intricacies of one of the best co-founder relationships in the entire ecosystem thus without further ado let's dive in to the 71st episode of the indian silicon valley podcast leading india's content landscape with umang bedi co-founder of versey innovation Thank you so much Omang for joining me. I'm absolutely delighted to be hosting you today. Thanks to you Raj, it's a pleasure to be here. Great to hear that and I want to understand all about how you have built this giant along with your partner in crime as you call it and we also going to delve deeper into that relation and how that's one of the most uh, friendly trustworthy co-founder relation at least I've observed from afar. But before we go into all of that, uh, I want to understand your personal journey better and as legend has it you made that magnanimous jump from the corporate career to, you know, coming to the entrepreneurial side of things and that was in a way that most people will find very surprising right so if you can give us an overview of not just why that decision was important personally to you but how it practically played out especially because of the apprehensions that one may consider to taking the entrepreneurial route especially after reaching what one may consider as the corporate hell i think that would be very interesting and will set the ground running to understand your perspective your context better no thanks jibrad so i think you know one word if i just want to zoom out a little bit that personifies my personal journey or professional journey is about looking for transformation opportunities both personally and uh, professionally right and i think my journey is uh, one that uh, i characterize into three phases the first phase was about 6 7 years where i worked as an engineer um developing products and developing solutions and developing technology across sun microsystems and semantic uh the next 14 years was where i accidentally found myself in a position uh of privilege uh where i got to work with some of the most amazing brands across intuit uh adobe and facebook to lead their businesses across the region as the india or the asia or the global ceo and uh the third phase uh was really around uh being an entrepreneur uh and i think those were the three phases now i think the first 7 years was very foundational because while i worked on developing products and technology a large chunk of that time was also spent uh working with clients observing consumers observing small businesses trying to understand what challenges they may have and i think intuit for me was a foundational role because it was an entrepreneurial journey of course within a much larger company i think the company under the leadership of scott cook uh, had it, had it established itself as one of the world's most admired software companies but it was a 100% us based business um so i was 27 and a half i remember i got this role uh, to grow into it into emerging markets uh, and india uh, and we set it up set up multiple uh, such establishments and offices but 
really launched a couple of new products uh, in market. Uh, we weren't given the family jewels of TurboTax and QuickBooks and Quicken, fundamentally because uh, the company worried about piracy in the rest of the world. Uh, and those were desktop software days. So I'm talking about a while ago. Um, but yeah, it was a great journey. We developed about three to four new products. One or two of them were reasonable commercial successes. One of them turned out to be a you know Harvard Business School course case study and then uh, was something that we did more as a CSR initiative. Uh, and one of them was a very big disaster uh, or a very big failure, which was a great learning moment for me. Um, the next five years for me was very fulfilling, actually five and a half, just under six when I moved to Adobe. And it was a very interesting time when uh, Adobe was fundamentally a box software company, uh, didn't really have a cloud-based business, even on the marketing technology side. And I think Shantanu, under his vision, really wanted to build that unified cloud tech-based company. Um, and we were privileged because India had, <clears throat> you know, more than half of the entire company based here. Uh, so we were spoiled in terms of uh, talent and in terms of local engineers creating local great products. But the innovation that really led to a big learning impact in my life was when we moved to the cloud and made things more accessible, more affordable, um, and more available. Um, and so what that did was, you know, we were point, you know, we were decimal point of Adobe's global revenue in those days. But moving to that model um, and proving out that pilot in India, which was then adopted uh, through a very brave uh, CEO in Shantanu and the board across the world. It led to Adobe's market cap growing from $8 billion to about $250 billion in just about three to four years. And that was astronomical because India then became amongst the top revenue generating markets in the world. <clears throat> Marketing technology for a SaaS-based product around Omniture and everything else we were amongst the top 10 global markets by revenue, which is rare for a SaaS-based business in India. Uh, and then the next three years or just under two years post that, I, I quit only because you know a company like Facebook uh, came calling and I had the privilege to work with them. Uh, but it was a great journey where we were able to grow Facebook more than 3x to the largest user market in the world with over you know 300 million monthly users back then um, and grow revenue exponentially. And it was a great learning opportunity around working for what I think is one of the best consumer tech product companies uh, and learning from the best. And so what happened was I turned 40 and I think that was a pivotal moment in my life. Uh, more from the sense that I realized I'm not young anymore or as young as I used to be. And uh, that journey was earmarked with three, you know, very pivotal moments of looking in the mirror. One, I didn't like the person I had become. Um, I was traveling. I was not spending enough time with family. And, uh, you know, I'd gone to about 140 kilos uh, in weight. Uh, two, I don't think I was having fun. Uh, because a lot of the real work around creating products in a consumer tech company happens way back in uh, California. Uh, and you have a limited uh, ability to move the needle in uh, local markets, which is more of a go-to-market operation. Um, so I think I was missing that. And I think third, the entrepreneurial ecosystem was, was you know, bursting out. Uh, but underlying all of this was the sheer belief that when you think about any market in the world where the duopoly operate, they dominate the time spent, they dominate the revenue. Uh, but there is that opportunity of potentially uh, creating a large digital tech media company uh, or platform uh, in a country where the duopoly is present. And that is only because the internet was pivoting. Thanks to Geo. The internet was pivoting towards adding more and more masses, more and more local language consumers. Um, as you know, at that point of time, you know, there were about 250 million people on the internet. There were predominantly English-speaking consumers in the country. Uh, today, we're at about 550 to 600 million, and English has remained constant, and the remaining 300 million plus are local language users. And in the next three to four years, when the internet hits a billion people, there would be seven to 800 million people consuming content in local languages because, hey, that's the demographic dividend in the country. Um, only 10% of people can communicate, speak, and consume content in English, even in traditional media. And so we felt that over the next three to four years, there is that opportunity to create that massive company that can act as a third front to the duopoly in the country. And that was the dream. 
Um, and so to cut a long story short, I think I took that third phase. The first phase of transformation was moving from an engineer to a CEO with literally no one reporting to me. The second phase of that transformation was you know, growing in these roles and businesses. And I think the third bigger phase for me, which was both personal and professional, was just letting go uh, and personally transforming my life, physical, fitness, time with family, uh, from 140 to half that number where I am today, uh, down to professionally letting go of titles. And I think what happens is we tend to judge ourselves on the ability of a title. And, you know, it's a very false sense of belief because, you know, Facebook is a great company or Adobe is a great company is led by their founders. You know, you're uh, a representative of the company, but that's not really you. Um, but given all your relationships in market are, you know, built by the brands that you represent, you tend to ask yourself whether people are meeting you or uh, people are meeting the one entitled with the responsibility of leading those businesses in the region. And I think it's a very hard question uh, to answer. I think most people, like you said, do get these roles much later in life. I had it, uh, I had the privilege and the opportunity of getting it early and working with some of the most talented people across uh, those 14 years, across into it, Adobe and Facebook. And so I just felt that I want to explore that for myself, right? Are my relationships truly mine? Um, what's my own credibility worth? Um, and can I have the opportunity of creating a large, uh, a very large, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar company out of India myself? And I think to me, that answer also came in with my partnership with Viru. Um, and so, you know, that really started off our journey to from where we were to where we now are now. I think the subtle differences on your question between the two journeys is one, this journey is more real. Uh, you feel a lot more responsible and you feel a lot more empowered because you do have 1,500 plus employees and families that you are you know, paying the bill for month on month. And so you need to ensure you know, that fiscal responsibility versus living in under a safety net uh, with large multinationals. Two, I think you also are truly empowered with your own vision on how you want to shape the destiny of the company and how you want to take that forward. Um, and three, I think uh, it's also very humbling uh, because you go through real highs uh, and you go through real lows. Um, and I think both those coupled together keep you very grounded and very humble. My only regret is not doing this 10 years earlier. Um, you know, I, I would have just you know, flipped the switch uh, and done it if I had the opportunity. So no regrets, but absolutely loving this journey. Sorry, a long answer to a short question. No, not at all. I think I, I love that because it raises those fundamental questions that we need to ask ourselves as well, right? What is it that we're chasing after all? And what's the kind of impact we want to leave behind after all? And how can we create valuable things that it, it can just, you know, leave us behind as well, right? Those legendary institutions that outlive us, as they call it. I think uh, those fundamental questions are risen and that's the real journey of an entrepreneur after all. So I think I love that flow of thought, in fact. Uh, and now I want to understand and on a deeper level as to how the Daily Hunt journey and Versi as a brand now has grown, right, with its family of apps as well. And before we dive deeper into the execution of it, I would love to understand what, in your opinion, uh, are the fundamentals of winning in the content game, right? Because multiple players have come in and tried this, right? It's not something that is a new or it's not the most uh, outside of the world idea, right? It, it is fairly uh, simplistic in terms of the idea part of it. Of course, the execution is way complicated. And that is where I think your vantage point would really help. But if you had to lay down the things that perhaps Daily Hunt has done well, or perhaps on the basis of if somebody wants to establish a content business, what are the pillars to get right? How would you lay it down for us? And what are the core components of it? I think that would be interesting to observe. No, great. So I think, you know, our strategy is very simple. Our vision really was that we want to own the mind share, the time share, and eventually the revenue share of local language audiences and Bharat audiences across a family of apps. Uh, our goal was driven by the mission that we want to be that largest platform serving Bharat, right? Where we allow people to get informed, uh, get engaged, and get entertained uh, on content that's not just uh, informational, which is news, 
but uh, you know, entertaining and and fun as well. And so that was the foundational level by which we set out on our mission. And I think what we are very clear about is uh, never deviating away from the mission. Now, what makes content businesses really hard? I would say there are three secret sauces that one needs to delve deeper on. Um, the first is the ability to understand content, context, consumer behavior, and uh, make intelligent predictions on what the consumer would like across what source, across what time of day. And the simple answer, the simple word to describe what I just said is your investment in artificial intelligence. Um, understanding content across different formats uh, whether it's audio, whether it's video, whether it's images, whether it's text, whether it's viral cards, so on and so forth. Uh, understanding this across languages, understanding the consumer behavior in terms of how he or she spends time, uh, engages with content, uh, you know, subscribes to shares, comments, likes, dislikes on various pieces of con con content. So I think that first leg, which is the left-hand side and the right-hand side, of understanding all the content and context and understanding consumer behavior and having AI really create the recommendation system such that you can recommend the right content to the right person for a deeply personalized, meaningful experience. So that's one. The second is how do you unleash supply? And so, you know, when you talk about supply, these are platform businesses. We don't create content on our own. Um, so how do you pull supply across Large organizations, you know, could be television channels, could be, you know, professionally generated content creators, independent content creators, influencers, thought leaders to come onto the platform. And that's a lot of on-ground uh, moats that you need to build to really get to the supply side of the ecosystem. The third is how do you build a business? Because if, you know, content creators are giving you content, they need to be compensated uh, around that content, right? And I think one of the hardest parts in content businesses is to make money. Uh, because unless you have a very differentiated piece of content, no one's going to subscribe or pay for it, right? Uh, and so you've got to start thinking about how you monetize, uh, which is where a lot of content businesses have failed because unless you, if you're using advertising as a medium, then you need to own your own advertising technology platform. And I think those are pivotal. Otherwise, you are dependent on networks uh, and back again to the duopoly to fulfill that demand via because they're the two largest ad networks in the world. Um, and so you got to get out of that ability, uh, one, to drive advertising technology, both on the performance side and on the brand side, such that you're in control of your auction engine, your algorithms, uh, and the ability to uh, ultimately make revenue, which you share back uh, with the content creator. So if you think about it, the Versafe innovation business is really built on these three self-fulfilling flywheels. One, you find a way to get a flywheel of the widest and deepest forms of content across languages, across formats. Um, you bring all of that onto the platform and you try and bring users onto the platform, which is the second uh, flywheel. As you can build more and more personalized experiences by driving AI uh, very, very deep across multiple models, you have users staying and spending more time, you know, getting other users, recommending your platform, uh, and growing time spent uh, and engagement. Uh, and that yields to a valuable audience for the third constituency or the third flywheel, which is advertisers, brands, and partners, right? Um, who like to reach out to this target audience. And so when you think about those three flywheels, uh, you get the most amount of content, which you can deeply personalize, which helps you get the most amount of users. If these are valuable audiences that are monetizable, then brands want to talk to them and that helps you share revenue back uh, with the content creator. So those are the three fundamental flywheels of our business. Awesome. No, that's, that's, I think, a very sublime explanation of how to, you know, sort out supply, demand, and then match it with an amazing infrastructure that you've spoken about in the past as well. And I love, you know, how the progression has been, which is what I want to talk about further as well. Uh, so if you can take us through the product roadmap of how Daily Hunt has evolved, right? So from a news aggregator platform to entering the digital media space to now becoming an entire social hub for all things digital content for the Bharat audience, the product has really taken a different shape, right? And with the numbers that you now deal with, I don't still see the innovation going down 
done, it's only taken a notch up higher, right? So if you can, you know, ponder a bit upon how this has happened, right? Because a lot of the fundamentals that Daily Hunt, for instance, has done differently, be it uh, not going with UGC at the start, uh, ensuring that there's a strong focus on a large part of the gated networks that exist, hyper-local content being the key, and not going social all at once, right? It was not, uh, you started with news aggregation to begin with, right? So if you can help us, you know, map out as a founder what your role becomes in driving product innovation and ensuring that the roadmap is taking the best shape and form and you're staying updated with the trends, right? Because I know you and Viru in the past have also spoken about how to stay ahead of the curve because Josh was also, it came at a point when it was pivotal for the Indian audience, right? So if you can help us map all of this in one as to how the product thinking in the company evolves and also how that's a core component of the team, long-winded question, but I think that'd be very helpful for the audience, especially young builders out there. See, um, firstly, Viru and I don't have all the answers. I just have to say that. And um, nor do everyone in our team. I think the the only constituent stakeholder that has the ability to fire all of us uh, is the customer, right? And so uh, it always starts with the customer of that understanding of that audience. And I think the way we like to think about India is there are three Indias. There is the Australia of India, which is super tier one, 50, 60 million people. Then there is the Brazil of India, if I could use that as a terminology, which is the growing middle class of four, 500 million people uh, living in uh, some tier one towns and some tier two, tier three towns. And then there is the Africa of India, which is 700 million plus people that are living in villages. Not everyone uh, is a consumer yet, right? Because when you take the socioeconomic uh, classification across this, uh, STCAB only cover not more than 500 million people in this country, right? Um, and that's spread across urban and rural, uh, STCAB urban and rural. So when we think about the product, we really start with who's the consumer. And I think the daily hunt journey started even uh, uh, more humbly wherein the first innovation that uh, Daily Hunt did, and this was way before uh, any other global player had gotten into the space, was how do you render a local language font onto a mobile screen? Um, because it wasn't supported, it was double byte. So Viru and the team actually did a lot of innovation just from solving that one small problem. So that was, let's say, the start. The second was, how do you build a brand? And I think we didn't talk about that in the three parts of you know what I said around content, but underlying all of that is brand and trust um, because consumers want to consume content from trusted sources and from known brands. Um, and you know, clickbaity content, racy, raunchy content, the Chinese growth hack model has not worked. Um, it's worked in China, it hasn't worked in India. Uh, and I can give you tens of examples of companies who follow that path and are no more, you know, they're no more in business in this country anymore. So I think the first part is understanding the consumer. And what we found was um, there's a lot of English content out there on the internet. Uh, There wasn't too much local language content because they weren't getting mediums for reach and distribution. So we literally went out and helped digitize content, notebooks, newspapers. That was the start of the journey that got about seven, 800 partners on board, drove limited personalization, but content across 14 languages. We then realized that the second part of the journey is that hey, we have news, but there is, you know, the Indian local language audience is keen to consume content across different topics. So for instance, if you're in Kerala, uh, the the Malayali-speaking population loves football. They actually follow English Premier League and all this uh, stuff out there. But there isn't too much of local language Malayalam content on English Premier League. So how do you then create and promote professionals who have the ability to create that content, but just don't know how to monetize it, right? So it's then investing the moats into growing the content landscape across just not just news, but non-news. So it could be astrology, divinity, Bollywood, cricket, music, lifestyle, entertainment, hyper-local, women, youth, technology, sports, finance, so on and so forth, right? So it's really nurturing that ecosystem. The third is when you get that content onto the platform, our feed initially looked like you know, a small deck of cards with a little image and an attribution to a publisher. But how do you change that to a multimedia-focused content discovery platform uh, across formats, across genres, 
um, that gets deeply personalized by a language or multiple language preferences of the user. Uh, and that's when we went through a complete feed design of our architecture and then added uh, all the elements around AI for deeper personalization. Um, the fourth bit in that journey was how do we think about um, you know, advertising and advertising tech, right? Now, as we go forward into the future, our roadmap is going more and more deeper into Bharat, more and more hyper-local, more and more content formats, using live as a format uh, for multiple things. Uh, and how do you get wider partners and wider content, which is uh, being produced, but doesn't have a way of getting showcased up? Um, so there's a lot happening around just the core daily hunt audience, because as you see, the internet is growing, that product line will grow. I think the whole world uh, is now also, if you think about the three most used application services in India on the internet, the, uh, the first is uh, social and messaging, right? I mean, if you just think about peer-to-peer -peer messaging, the second one is entertainment. Uh, the third one uh, is news, right? And so uh, when you think about entertainment, uh, what we found is people's attention spans uh, getting smaller and smaller. Uh, the long format lean back experience content is moving behind the paywall uh, for all the players, Indian and global. And, you know, with the amount of time people have commuting on the roads, you know, all of that stuff that they do, the ability to consume snackable content is uh, on the rise. And I think uh, the need is a very need, is a very clearly defined definition, which I think TikTok had proven very successfully in the country. And so that really gave rise to the ability to launch Josh. And Josh for us is a, you know, uh, what we call a mega confluence or a Mahagatbandan of uh, the country's top creators, the top music labels, the hottest entertainment format, great camera tech and technology with AR and VR experiences. And I think once we take them through these experiences, we then take them for things like creatathons where we marry influencers uh, with celebrities such that they can be trained uh, and then take them up the value chain such that they can monetize their content, get you know married to brands, uh, so on and so forth. So the, uh, the, the focus on the creator is massive. And I think when you think about your who your audience is and you don't forget that the creators at the heart of that experience, both at Daily Hunt and at... Uh, and on Josh, that's what's, you know, apart from the volume variety, the AI, the advertising technology, but that's what's really led to the growth. And so Daily Hunt today now serves over uh, 300 million users every month uh, on the app and the web, over 210 million users every month on the app alone. 50% uh, of those users come back every day. Same with Josh, we now serve over 120 million users in just about a year from the start. And, you know, about 50% come back every day and uh, they spend a lot of time. And the core business has been monetizing well uh, and breaking EBITDA neutral, getting to about $200 million of ARR this year. And so I think that's the foundation by which we built it uh, in terms of a strategy. I think going forward, what you will see from us is the roadmap getting expanded towards more distinct apps being created, serving distinct needs of Bharat. And I think that's uh, how we think about roadmap. So we think about wide spaces, we think about depth within those spaces, but the way we choose a space to go after is uh, basis the TAM uh, or the total addressable market. And so when we like to look at large TAMs, which have large problems uh, where solutions can scale and have deep impact um, because the moment you want to try and build a legitimate third front to uh, you know the duopoly of Google and Facebook in the region you've got to be able to solve a large problem and reach a lot of people uh, so I think that is very very fundamental to the way we think uh, around our mission of solving for Bharat. Absolutely. And evidently so. And I think the evident structure and eloquence in ensuring that the vision gets carried forward and is explained in a manner that is gulpable is just lovely. And I think that has been a constant throughout the conversation. As we proceed further and, you know, go on to the ends of the conversation, I want to understand your strong focus on measuring what matters, as they call it, right? And metrics has been a strong focus. You've spoken in numbers as well. And we see a combined volume of such scale being managed. So if you can help us understand both on an internal level and on an external level, what is it that as a founder, 
you keep track of and also ensure that the organization carries forward so that systems and checks and balances are maintained so as to serve the consumer to the best. I think that would be great. And on external front, what are you eventually measuring as KPIs for the company as a whole, right? Is it revenue? Is it a DAUs, MAUs, whatnot, right? Time spent, uh, folks coming back, uh, the ratios of DAU, MAU. So if you can give us a quick walkthrough of that, and especially those metrics that are beyond the vanity metrics, I think that would be very helpful. Got it. No, no, that's a great question. So I think I'll start with a slightly different lens, which I think matters to founders, and that is people. So if you think about our business, you know, we don't own delivery shops, we don't have physical brick and mortar, we don't have any supply chain, uh, we don't do any distribution and delivery of physical goods and products, right? All the content comes from partners, whether they're large organizations, professionals, individuals, uh, hyper-local content creators or influencers, they own their content. And, you know, the music comes from the music companies, for instance, uh, who owns uh, the rights to the music. And so at the heart of it, we are an AI company, okay? Uh, and AI is the product. And when you think about it, uh, it's the people that, you know, our talent that really helps create that. And so our biggest intellectual property is people. Um, and I think it's a very important realization because who are you serving and how are you serving and what quality of talent are you bringing in really gets redefined by that thinking. So I think one first principle that we've used is hire people who are better than us, who are deeper and more specialized in areas that, you know, Viru and I are not equipped at least to handle at that depth. Two, uh, we empower them beyond discomfort. And so it's okay to fail. Uh, just fail fast, right? Uh, and so we empower people to fail. And three, uh, I think what's really, really important is never getting into a comfort zone. So we're always paranoid around how we could be disrupted at any given point of time. And so I think we like to be humble uh, and focused around that paranoia that keeps us energized and going. So I think that's one thing that I would say. I think on the other side, when we look at our first line of leaders, anyone who works in our leadership team could be a CEO anywhere else. I think they have the stature, the composure, uh, the knowledge, the experience, and the uh, the chops behind delivering uh, great products uh, or great solutions or great go-to-market outcomes in their previous lives as well. I think the third thing that we look at from a pure metric standpoint is there's a lot of vanity metrics that are touted in media by several agencies and several numbers. Uh, we like to look at only three metrics. What is our user growth? And mouse there is a good indication, but we like to focus on DAOs, okay? And as a result of that DAOs equation, DAO really is the daily active. So it tells you how often they're getting back. And the, the leading metric out of that is retention. Um, and so that's a very, very key metric for us to look at. The second metric that we look at is engagement. Is time spent growing on the platform? What are the ways that we can use to grow it? So on and so forth. And the third metric that we look at is monetization. And so monetization is a lagging indicator of the business is the way I'll frame it in content businesses because you know we haven't monetized Josh full-fledged like we have the core daily hunt yet. Uh, we will do that in the future, but right now it's an opportunity to capture market share and grow. And so those are the three simple metrics that we look at. There's no fourth. Uh, it's user growth, it's time spent, it's uh, monetization or revenue. Uh, and retention, of course, is an outcome uh, of the first, right? So we keep it very simple. And I think uh, the way the company is organized in terms of permeating that is, uh, one, I think everyone shares this mission around solving for Bharat and the company. So they're very energized around the mission. Two, the kind of problem statements that they work on, like let's say a young engineer comes in, right? He's thrown into a problem statement of a scale and size that, you know, probably there are global companies that would work on bigger problems. I won't uh, deny that, but it'll take them three to four years before a single line of their code gets into production. It's as simple as that. Uh, whereas at us, you're thrown right into the woods. Uh, you're dealing with large scale problems, large scale uh, data sets. And so it really energizes engineers. Uh, and so when you can ensure that every part of the organization knows which lever they're impacting, whether it's user growth, engagement, monetization, or all of them, that shared vision is easier to build. It's hard when the goals are diametrically opposite each other. So that's what we do when we focus on metrics.
That's amazing, I think, because it summarizes large portion of, uh, and it's interesting, the question was on data, but you summarized it with team, and that's the amazing genesis and mixture of it, right? And if uh, all founders can empower teams in a way that, you know, metrics are at the center of what the outcomes are, but what is focused upon is the people. I think that just summarizes the amazing journey that founders undertake and the amazing institutions they end up building. Uh, Daily Hunt and Josh being examples of it, Versailles being an example of it. So I think I love that. And that's great guardrails for anyone looking to start a company. As we talk about, you know, starting a company, I want to take a step back and understand the amazing relationship that you share with your co-founder we do as you call it and uh, I think uh, it's shown in past interviews it's shown in the way you both acknowledge what the contributions of both of you are on the table and it's just so intellectually honest so if you can give us a background and maybe guardrails of how that relationship evolves because the fundamental tone of any company will be that first relationship and that just shows in how you've carried Daily Hunt and are building this giant out of India and I hopefully think that you know one day there'll be a Try poly if that's what it's called but uh, Daily Hunt will be up there and we're strongly sure of that so if you can give us an overview of that relationship and any learnings that you can perhaps generalize for the audience as well when searching for co-founders when establishing those relationships and when starting a company I think that would be very helpful no I think uh, you know to put it this way no two people are, are alike and you could argue that Biru and I at the surface of it are two completely different individuals uh, in terms of everything, right? But deep down, I think what we share is this very clear, simple vision of leaving a legacy behind and creating large impact, bridging the digital divide and creating a business that outlasts us by generations. If you have that core belief that you share, you know, maybe your core belief is I want to make a billion dollars. I don't know what that is for co-founders, right? But for us, it's not money. For us, it's not name and fame. In fact, we're very shy. I think you have chased me for a year to get this uh, discussion going or for more. I don't know. No, I have. We're very, very shy. We like to be under the radar and um, just be understated. So I think we're similar there in that nature. The other thing that you know, this journey of entrepreneurship takes you through is, uh, you know, the sine wave of ups and downs, right? And uh, through it all, pressure, character, everything is tested. I think with the fundamental thing for why Viru and I are so well interviewed, it's not that we have the same perspective on everything. In fact, we argue on things from two different sides all the time, all the time, right? Initially, I was the more aggressive, you know, North Indian Punjabi in the relationship. Viru was the more thoughtful one. Now, of course, roles are reversed. Uh, and so we complement each other at different points of time using and learning from each other's styles. But I think it fundamentally boils down to a very deep intellectual honesty between us, a very high degree of trust, a complete openness on what is our personal goal and our professional goal down to you know, everything from finances down to personal lives. And so we built that over time, but trust is built. And so we, you know, you can assume that if you tell me something, Viru knows. And if you tell Viru something, I know. So that, you know, anyone in the ecosystem, whether it's, uh, can't play one against the other. We have that very deep uh, ability to connect. We talk early. We, you know, we talk before we go to bed. We keep each other updated on practically everything in the business. But it boils down to, what I would say uh, when you think about uh, that shared vision and shared values is being there for each other in moments of lows as well, right? Because the highs, these are very easy things to go by. And I think there has to be empathy to understand where the other person is coming from. And I think Viru and I share that very deep intellectual honesty and we fought many wars together, right? Which gets you even closer uh, over time. So I would just give, uh, I think these relationships, nothing is made in heaven. I think they have to be worked on with a very deep empathy from both sides and a very deep understanding of where that individual is coming from, right? But I think Viru and I can argue for hours on what's the right approach on a certain problem statement. But the winner, sometimes I'm coming top down and he's coming bottoms up or the other way around, I'm coming bottoms up and he's coming top down. But the winning decision is what's right for Versa Innovation. It's not what's right for him, what's right for me, what's right for 
you know, the head of AI or the head of, you know, customer experiences or, you know, whoever. It's not a, it's not a people-led decision. It's not an investor-led decision. It's what's right for the company. And if you can always use that lens, you know, you will end up with, uh, you can argue whether something's right or wrong, but you will always end up with the objective, the right objective equation in this, right? And so, yeah, that's our philosophy of working with each other and yeah i think we're each other's best friends and very very close so yeah that's uh, a little bit on that that's very fulfilling and refreshing to hear to be honest because it just uh, i think lays the fundamentals of what profoundly expresses a co-founder relationship and i think that just summarizes it in the most perfect manner especially the fact about being extremely intellectually honest and working on that trust aspect as you called it um great i think this conversation has been full of uh, different insights on company building as well as uh, you know the personal guardrails of building a company i want to take a moment to address some founder persona questions as i like to call it it is it's a set of similar questions that i ask each guest on the show but it just uh, expresses a part of the founder that is both personal and more qualitative in nature so the first question there that i want to present to you is mostly around you know prioritization and decision making uh especially given that the scale at which uh verse now operates and uh given the size of the organization and whatnot it's just a magnanimous amount of tasks that you have to undertake right and given that you've already have that kind of a hat of you know taking uh, on scale organizations and leading them uh can you help us understand what keeps you stay in shape in terms of a prioritization framework and what are your general rules of thumb or any actionable frameworks to make decisions at any given point in time so i think it's very simple i'll just keep a very short answer here we work on problem statements the whole company hustles around problems we work in cross functional teams we like to identify the biggest problems that will make the biggest impact and we prioritize basis that it's as simple as that you know a leader could lead a certain cross functional group for problem statement a another leader could lead it for problem statement b if they are mutually exclusive uh, and are not dependent on each other these run in parallel if there is a dependency you again bubble up which the you know how that dependency works in terms of decision making it's very simple what's right for verse innovation what's right for verse innovation we look at three stakeholders we look at our employees uh we look at our shareholders uh but most importantly we look at our consumers and our customers right and so uh advertising customers and so uh, it's that lens that we use uh, so there is actually no other decision making framework it's uh ruthless prioritization on the biggest problems uh that can make impact and how you make decisions is what's going to make sense to all these three constituencies of stakeholders simple no other rocket science I I love that no simplicity is definitely the answer there further you know as you think about a time spent and where you're spending most of your mind share especially as the uh, founder of a large organization seemingly so and on the pathway to scale can you give us a breakdown of how much time do you maybe perhaps spend with yourself or with your co-founder to actually lay down the vision of the company right how much of it goes into thought because uh, so much of the vantage point will still remain with you and Viru despite how much of the execution gets done by the team members so i think that could help and how much of that time is also spent on let's say personal challenges and personal things will be very helpful to understand because so much of the conversation is around hustle putting in 16 18 hours of days but to be able to take a step back look at the macro picture carve out the 5 10 year old i'm guessing is equally important if not more so if you can help us understand that perspective that would be wonderful again i'll keep it short i think for both biru and me personal health and fitness is a priority so we try our best um you know you have weeks where you can get a little lazy and lax because of for whatever reasons but overall i think we try and focus on our on our fitness i think fitness in my mind is the biggest uh, or the best uh, drug in terms of solving for mental health or anything else right it just changes your whole, whole perspective if uh you can dedicate that time so i think one we we do that a lot consciously two we spend a lot of time focusing on the future new apps new partnerships new talent you know what's what's got us here is not going to get us there uh, into the future and so what do we need to really build uh is something that we both spend 
a fair degree of time on more than half our time on the future the teams and uh, and the leaders are very capable of keeping you know the engine running and growing uh, on the current state but we we definitely look at a lot of new areas new opportunities we evaluate it some things we drop some things we run into smaller ab experiments and see whether it makes sense or not but we're constantly thinking about new products new markets uh, new partnerships new talent uh, new regions, new shareholders, investors, so on and so forth. And so we spend a disproportionate amount of our time on that. And I think we uh, we both wake up early. So we we tend to start our day early before the noise starts and we keep each other fairly abreast and updated. You know, you write the vision once, uh, but then how that manifests into a strategy gets defined by the opportunities you uncover and the decisions you make because strategy is all about choices, right? Uh, and so we constantly keep evolving on those decisions, uh, but that's our simple framework. That's very helpful again, like, uh, because it shows that you have to spend that time on the future and it's not just execution, execution, execution. You have to develop frameworks that can carry out the execution in the best possible manner. Uh, so great to have that echoed. Uh, further for the second last question, Umang, uh, I would love to understand how is it that you've managed to, let's say, you know, go ahead and tackle the challenges because I'm sure it's not been as rosy as one may imagine and the numbers are wonderful, but it's going to be a mountain here for task to serve the 800 1 billion odd internet users that come afresh on the internet from india so if there are any helpful frameworks on that aspect i think that would be helpful or any anecdotes in fact as well of where things might have gone wrong or things might have gone challenging but you could uh, navigate the board in a way that it you could come out uh, in the best side i think there is no silver bullet to that answer we have gone through more lows more mistakes than you know is visible in the external world let me just put it that way i think those learning moments are all teachable points of view in terms of what we could have done better you know you'll always have this balance to play between growth and you know building a good business building a solid first principles business i think that's a constant challenge that we you know, go through in our minds uh, because growth can come uh, on account of bad behavior or, or doing things which are not sustainable over time, right? Uh, and so we are very mindful and very cagey around growing the business by doing things that are not sustainable. And so you could argue that, you know, we of course saw a hockey stick in our, in our curve of growth, but in the first, first time period, there weren't very many believers uh, because of our approach. Right. And so I think in retrospect, there's no right or wrong. But in terms of how we think about this, in terms of how we develop our foundational elements, it's around building an organization that can last. Right. And so we like sustainable growth. We like big moats in the business to be uh, developed. Uh, and that's how we think about it. Uh, and anything that feels like a very opportunistic fly by night very tempting to do on a short-term basis because it will help bump up some metrics. We tend to stay away from those kind of opportunities because they're not sustainable or we don't think that we're the right company uh, to chase those opportunities. And so we that's how we think. I don't know if that answered your question at all, but um, that's, that's literally it. In terms of anecdotes of where we failed, I mean, I can give you tons, but I think uh, the biggest insight comes from consumers, right? And so whether, you know, people like us have a bias towards local language consumers. You know, those biases were proven to me by a young air hostess on an Indigo flight who made an announcement of, you know, local languages and then told me, uh, actually, that language announcement helps drive sales and more than half the sales happen in a local language, right? Uh, and so the bias that we have that only an English language consumer in India is a consumer. Um, you know, I think we uh, we ran a very interesting campaign around Harbhasha uh, equal, which you could look up. Again, there are biases that we have. There are tons of learnings that we have. I'm, I'm learning a lot every day through these young influencers and kids who come onto the platform and are getting discovered on Josh. UGC is a completely different world. So yeah, I think that's the best way for me to summarize it. I don't think I have a better answer, but yeah, we've made our mistakes. Just keep your eye onto the ground and learn from your customers. I think they are your best guide. 
Absolutely. No, I think that's very, very helpful indeed. And uh, I wish I could continue for longer, but uh, for the benefit of time and the conversation as well, to bring it to the close, I think uh, I'd rather end with a stereotypical one, but uh, I'm guessing that most learnings can be tend to get prescriptive. So instead of the prescriptive ones, if you have any final red flags for the entrepreneurial pathway, especially given your vantage point of coming from a corporate uh, know-how, turning to this side of the table, I think that would be very helpful as we bid farewell to what has been a wonderful conversation. I think three big tips, and you know, by the way, I make the same mistake. So I'm I'm saying this for myself as much as everyone else. I think one, really analyze what is the problem you're solving? Who is that problem for? And how big is that problem? Very often, we go down the path of solving a problem and it never was a problem in the first place, which is the fundamental reason why businesses don't take off and fail. So I would always question, what are you solving? Why is that solve important? And if you were to solve it efficiently and elegantly, how big is that target market? And I think brutal honesty there is very, very important. The second thing that I would say is, if you are in the journey of raising capital, who you partner with defines your journey in a large in a large uh, way. So my learning there is partner with high quality capital that believes in your vision and wants to build this large company over a period of time. Rome wasn't built in a day. And I think the third thing that I would say is how hire the best people, empower them um, beyond comfort and focus on building uh, a big future. So I think those are three very cliched things, but uh, I often make mistakes on all three along the journey. So it's a constant reminder to us as well. Absolutely. No, great to have that reiterated. And I think that's a perfect close to what has been a great, great conversation. Thank you so much, Umang, for your time. It's amazing to see you build uh, along with Virendra and the amazing team at Daily Hunt versus uh, Josh to kind of see, you know, how you're building this flywheel in the country. And I remember Vikram talking about this in an episode where he mentioned you have all the right tools and the right to win in the market. And we really hope and await to see you do that. So thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute privilege for me. Thanks, Rajiv Raj. Really pleasure to be here. With that, we come to the end of the 71st episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast with Umang Medi, co-founder of Verse Innovation. Verse Innovation is a prime example of how a company can be an early mover in a potentially large market and keep innovating to consolidate its presence all throughout. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you're finding value with the podcast, do follow it on the audio streaming platform of your choice, drop in a review or subscribe to our WhatsApp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox. Thanks again. I will see you next week for another episode. Till then, I hope you recall. If you never try, you'll never know. Stay tuned and keep building.